Um, based on Acts 1.1, we know the theme of, of Acts is what? That it's what Jesus continues to do and to teach, right? So, and as, we've, as we've been anticipating the last few weeks, looking at Paul's background, we're about to turn a corner into in this Acts narrative. We've seen Jesus lead his church to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, that's right. And now we're turning the corner and we're going to be heading, we're, we're starting the sprint towards the ends of the earth. Actually, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? It's a long run, but we're beginning it. Uh, we've, we've been seeing the, the first kind of stages with, with, with Peter and with Cornelius and then kind of the council in Jerusalem when Peter came back and they're like, what in the world happened? And he's like, well, apparently God has given the gift of grace to the Gentiles too. And so now we're going to see um, Saul get engaged in that. So, um, so we've seen that in, even though we see different characters coming in and out, we see Peter and John, the apostles, we see uh, Barnabas, we see guys like Stephen, guys like Saul. Even though these characters are moving back and forth, we know, we know there is one central character in the book of Acts. And it's who? It's Jesus. Right? Because the whole theme is what, Je this is what Jesus continues to do and teach. So even though we see all these, all these other uh, characters that are moving around, we know Jesus is alive and he's at work. And so if we could ask the question tonight, how do we see Jesus at work in this passage? And in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, I, I'm convinced the text give a, gives us at least three answers. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time tonight is to look at those at, those at least three answers. All right? So first thing I want you to see, we're going to kind of, we're going to look at the text in snippets as we go along. But the first thing I want us to see is that the, is that the Christ of the gospel is advancing his kingdom. The Christ of the gospel is advancing his kingdom. Let's, um, let's see, to get a little bit of context, we're going to look back at Acts chapter 8 for a second. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to have it up here on the screen, I think. Maybe not. Nope. So, yep, turn there. <laughs> Boy, like Cody said, this is going well. All right. And Acts, both in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 11, we see this persecution that breaks out. This persecution that's broken out, not just against one person, but it's broken out against the entire church. And the, and the result is the dispersion, the scattering of believers um, and the gospel, really, throughout Judea and Samaria. So Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Just a little bit to the left there, back. And it says this, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, let's skip on to verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering, the, entering house after house, dragging, men, men and, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, that's Acts chapter 8. Now, let's look at our passage. Acts chapter 11, starting with verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse, verse, uh, verses 19 through 21. And this will be up on the screen. So I'll have to talk with the guy that put this all together. He's not, he's not earning his pay. All right. Verse, verse 19. That's, that's me, by the way. That's not anybody else. That's, that's me. So, it's, well, this is, thankfully. So, verse 19. So, then arose, um, then, arose, then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, okay, 
This harkens back to Acts chapter 8. Stephen's preaching the gospel. He's stoned to death. Saul's there, right? He's giving, a, he's giving approval to, to his execution and then persecution breaks out. So we see that being referenced here in Acts chapter 11. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. Verse 20, but then there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, were, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Amen. So, Christ's church has been preaching the gospel, right? Christ's enemies respond with an increasingly intense persecution, right? First, just being reprimanded. Don't preach in this name again. Then they're being beaten, right? Being beaten with rods. And so then they're kicked out, right? That's when the, the apostles leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they've, they've been counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus, right? So they've been reprimanded. They've been uh, basically threatened. They've been beaten. And then Stephen gets killed in Acts chapter 8, right? So Stephen gets killed mid-sermon. He doesn't even get the fullness of the gospel out. And they drag him out and they stone him to death. A massive wave of persecution breaks out against the church. And do you remember what was the intended, what was the intended result of them doing this to the, to the apostles and to the deacons and to the church? Yeah, to stop them, to shut them down, to quiet them, to silence them. Right, that was the goal. But what actually happened? Exactly. As the church was scattered, they went about preaching the word. And you see that in both of these passages, both in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 11. As they, go about, as they go about being scattered, as they go about being displaced, they're refugees. They, have, they don't know where they're going to live. So they're just kind of moving around to find where, what's next. And as they do so, they, they proclaim the gospel. And the problem, we see a problem at first at the beginning of our passage. There's an old pattern that's being, that's being fleshed out yet again in verse 19. These Jewish Christians were sharing the gospel with who? Look at verse 19. No one but the Jews alone, right? So again, we, 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 see the, we make this observation that the gospel tends to travel the fastest amongst people of the same group right? That's an observation. That's not law. That's not a prescription for anything. Like, that's not the way we should do it, but that's the way that it tends to happen. It tends to move fastest within a group, right? And so that's what's happening. People are going with what they know, the people they have the most in common. They probably show up to a new town. They go to the synagogue because that's where the Jews are going to be, and they're, pro they're proclaiming the gospel as they go. But the problem is they've been given this, this command by Jesus, right? To make disciples of all nations to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's a partial disobedience there. But there's a change in verse 20. Look there at verse 20 with me. Some of those who were being scattered, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, made their way to where? Look at verse 20. To Antioch. They go to a city called Antioch. Let me give you a little bit of background on Antioch. Antioch was, was founded about 350 years before this time in about 80, or BC 300. So, uh, founded by a guy named Seleucus 
Nicator, Seleucus Nicator. You probably don't know about him. You might know his dad's name. His dad's name was, was Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the guy, one of the guys that ransacked Jerusalem, right? He was known for his brutality. Terrible things, horrible things happened under his, under his leadership um, to God's people. So, um, so this, this city is founded by Seleucus Nicator, one of Alex, Alexander the Great's generals. He named the city after his father Antiochus. And over the years, it had become known as Antioch the Beautiful because of its fine, because of its fine buildings. It had a long paved boulevard going right through the middle of the city from north to south. And it was flanked on both sides by trees and columns and, and fountains and things like that. It was a beautiful city, right? So that's why it's called Antioch, the beautiful. It also, uh, by the time of the, the, the book of Acts is taking place, you, you would see over 500,000 people called Antioch home. That is not a small city, Right? And within that 500,000, you have colonies um, from, let's see, from Persia, from India, from China, and as well as colonies of Jews. And so there are people from all over that are descending on this one city. So it was also called the Queen of the East. And it was also, in terms of its size and its importance, it was looked at later on as the, the third, really the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. So this is a major, major city. So they went where? They went to Antioch. And then compared to verse 19, right? Verse 19 says that these people, they came, they, they were going around and they preached to no one but the Jews, right? Verse 20, who did they preach to? To the Greeks also, right? The Greeks also. Now, who, now when it says the Greeks, what are they saying there? This is a really ambiguous word. It's only used twice that in, in anything that we know of. And they're both here in the book of Acts. You're going to see, as you, the more and more we study the word, the more we see that sometimes, sometimes uh, people like, like Luke, people like Paul and others, they, they do a little bit of wordsmithing. They, they, they may make a twist on a word to, to suit their ends and to, to kind of explain what's going on. So here we see this word for Greeks being used only twice in antiquity. Um, so basically, it's people whose language and culture were Greek, even though that doesn't mean that they're necessarily Greek, like they're from Greece and they, they have Greek ethnicity. Remember, what did we talk about a few weeks ago with, with Hellenization? Remember, Hellenization was this process where Alexander the Great came through, kind of mowed over the known world, and in doing so, he, in order to keep the peace, he kind of instigated or it kind of um, set up Greek culture, Greek language, Greek architecture everywhere. So you might have tons and tons of different people groups with their own culture, with their own language, but in order for them to do business with one another, they have to do something. They have to learn Greek. And so you see over this massive section of land, that's really kind of the, the home of Western civilization. All that we know really is and this time is united by a common trade language. So, so it, when it says here the Greeks, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Greek people, but they do have a Greek understanding and they do, have, they do speak Greek, even if it's just for, for trade purposes. Okay? And I want you to see this. It, 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 says the, it says the phrase, to the Greeks also. 
that word, that word also is really important. It, it means also. Okay? That doesn't mean that ministry to the Jews had to stop. It means that ministry is taking place to the Jews and to the Greeks. To be a, to be a good evangelist, to, to be a, a good follower of Jesus Christ, you didn't have to give up on the Jews entirely. But ministry to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, must begin. It's an adding to, not a switch, right? So they went to, they went to Antioch. Who'd they preach to? To the Greeks also. Now, next, what did they preach? We don't have time to go over this in, in really great detail, but I want you to see this. They preached a simple gospel message, okay? First, they preached that Jesus is Lord. Amen right? They preached the Lord Jesus. It says that there in verse 20. And then uh, it also says that it, they, they preached repentance and faith. Uh, where do you see that, Justin? Let's look at verse, verse 21. Verse 21 says um, that they, those who believed turned to the Lord, okay? So there's the word there, the word believe there is, is the word that we use for faith, and then there's a turning to the Lord, which we see that all the time, right? In, in the Bible, that you're turning from sin to the Lord. That's repentance. And so they're, they're preaching Christ as Lord. And the people that are hearing as the Lord is working, they are believing the message. They're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're turning from sin and trusting in Christ as Lord and then what next? What's the result in verse 21? A large number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And why? And I want you to see this, verse 21. And that's where it ties back to really what our point is for this, this first section. Because the hand of the Lord was with them. They did not go in thinking, I'm going to draw people. I'm going to take people to Jesus. Or I'm going I'm to save people. We're going we're gonna to get them in that church service and they're going to they're gonna be saved. And that's, not, that's not the goal here. They're being faithful to obey the Great Commission. They're making disciples. They're preaching and proclaiming the gospel. They're being faithful to do what Jesus has commanded them to do. And then what does it say? The Lord, the hand of the Lord was with them. Just like he promised in Matthew 28, 18, right? Right? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to obey whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so they're being faithful to obey the Great Commission, and Jesus is faithful to them. Amen. And he's working. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to make some uh, big intellectual argument for, for someone to trust in Jesus. Be faithful to, to proclaim the gospel. And I want you to notice too, we don't know who these people are. There's no record of what their names are. And really in the grand scheme of things, I don't think they would even care. Because we see the impact that the Lord, the central figure of all scripture, has through them. Man, what would that be like at the end of our lives that we can look back and we get to see Maybe nobody remembered my name, but I get, maybe by God's grace, I get to see just a glimpse of what he did in and through my life. Not so that people would think that I'm something, because I'm not, but that people would see him and know that he is worth all praise and glory. 
So application, how have you obeyed Jesus' marching orders lately? Jesus' marching orders to the church, the Great Commission. How have you, not just have you, but let's get specific. How are you obeying the Great Commission? What are you doing in your life that is in line with what Jesus' marching orders for the church are? And then secondly, um, what bridges for the gospel in our daily lives are we neglecting? And what does that reveal about our hearts? Does that make sense? Any questions about this before we move on? Ooh, tough crowd. All right. Either I'm doing something right or I'm doing something terribly wrong. I'm not sure which. So first, we saw that Christ, the Christ of the gospel is advancing his kingdom. Secondly, let's see how the Lord of the harvest is sending out laborers into his harvest. The Lord of the harvest is sending out laborers into his harvest. What did Jesus say in Luke 10 verse 2. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so here we get to see in Acts 11, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And he is sending out those that he desires to do the work, to do the work that he set out before them. So verse, let's look at uh, verse 22. Acts 11 verse 22 says, the news about them had reached the ears of the church, at Ant- uh, the church at Jerusalem. And they sent who? Barnabas. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed, I love this phrase, he witnessed the grace of the Lord. People getting saved, and Luke calls it the grace of the Lord. He rejoiced and he began to encourage them with, to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus. Aha! Tarsus! Two weeks ago, right? He left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So first, verse 22. What, why did they send Barnabas to Antioch? You ever wonder that? Why did, Bar- why of all the people, why, why didn't they send Peter or John or one of these other, one of the other apostles? Why did they send this former priest uh, named Barnabas? Well, one reason might be that because there were tons of people from Cyprus there in Antioch. And these, these, uh, these people that we don't know their names, these, uh, these Jewish Christians that are coming down, they're being, they're being scattered out from Jerusalem, that are preaching the gospel there. Many of them were from Cyprus, remember? And it just so happens that Barnabas is from Cyprus as well. So Barnabas, we, and we actually see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Barnabas would know the culture. He would know, he would be familiar with the worldview, the people that were there. And he would also have known uh, not, only, not only the trade language of Greek, but he would also have been familiar maybe with some of the heart level languages some of those people group languages that, that were present there. So when he gets there in, in verses 23 and 24, what does he see? Again, I love that phrase. He sees the grace of the Lord. People, people, tr- people that were once far from God, he has, God has brought them near. He's brought them to himself. And he calls that the grace of the Lord, that, he, that the Lord would, would see fit to save. And I love this too. A.T. Robertson, if you've ever, uh, a good reference is A.T. Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament. Just takes 
what's going on and, and, and use uh, some of that, that poetic language, that really illustrative language that's used in the, in the New Testament in Greek. And he just kind of fills with meaning some of those phrases for us. A.T. Robertson writes this. These people were brought to the Lord Jesus before they were brought to the church. If that were always true, what a difference it would make in our churches. Amen. Well, that's the idea that when somebody, somebody that comes to the, the, be part of the church must be someone who the Lord has brought to himself first. That's why we emphasize that believer, believer church membership, right? Someone who must be born again before they can be part of the church. All right? So the, that word brought, prostithemi, or prostithemi, sorry, was used by Luke to, as a word for church growth. He had used it twice describing the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.41. And then he described what happened afterwards in verse 47, um, using the same word. Also note that it was the Lord who, who was adding and not human missionaries. When, we, when, uh, when we're seeing the Lord bringing people to the Lord so that he is now both the subject and the object. He is the source and he is the goal of evangelism. We have to, we have to repent of all these self-centered, self-confident concepts of Christian mission. We don't save anybody. And if we see that for the second time tonight, friends, the Lord brings people to himself. All he asks of us is faithfulness in proclaiming his gospel. Verse 25 the gospel is advancing explosively in Antioch. And so quickly Barnabas realizes that he does not have the gifts to fully handle the situation. But he knows somebody that does. Who? Saul. So he, he leaves what's happening here where the church is exploding in, in Antioch. He leaves and he heads north to Tarsus. And I think maybe I've got a map in here. Do I have one? There we go. All right. So you can see down here in the bottom right hand corner. Uh, you see Jerusalem, and then Damascus, and then Antioch. Antioch's kind of in the corner there, and then right around, right around the, the bay, I guess you could say, from Antioch is Tarsus. It's the, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Cody. Appreciate that, man. Oh, no, I'm seeing it. They're not seeing it. He's, there's a mouse moving back here. So I, yep. We're going to have to figure out how to, how to label that. It's the fourth dot from the, on, the, on the right side. How about that? Does that help? So... It looks, really, it looks really close right there on the map, but it's actually really far. So yeah, he leaves and he heads to Tarsus, right? We remember Tarsus. We're familiar with Tarsus. Um, and this is, this is where, why, why is Tarsus important when we're talking about Saul? Do you remember? It's his hometown. That's right. It's his hometown. <clears throat> He's back home in Tarsus. The, believe, the, the Jewish believers had sent him there back in Acts 9 when his life was threatened. So, he had, so in between what happened in Acts 9, he spent some time in Arabia. And then he spends some time, uh, a little bit of time here in Tarsus. So he, he's kind of in the waiting room here. Um, I'm sure there's lots of things that are happening in his life. There are lots of things that he's learning. And he, I'm sure that he's, uh, based on what we see from, from Saul, when, he's, when he first comes to know Jesus, he immediately starts sharing the gospel, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have a waiting period in that regard. He gets after it telling people about Jesus. So I'm sure that he's busy and doing work here. But in terms of the greater mission, in terms of the missionary journeys that we know he's going to take, he's kind of in the waiting room here. And I, I, just a couple other things I thought that were interesting I'd love to share with you. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a vision that he has of, of heaven. And then he talks about immediately, immediately afterwards, there's a thorn, a thorn in his flesh. 
And there's a lot of speculation about what that is and that kind of thing. But he says that it happened 14 years before the time of writing um, that, that letter, that letter to the, the church at Corinth. One of the fun things I get to do, that I got to do uh, in teaching Paul's epistles was that I got to really zero in on, like, when were these books written, that kind of thing. Some people say, think that were written many, many decades afterwards, and they couldn't have possibly been Paul. And one, one of the things I've gotten to see, like, the more that I study, the more I see that these, bo- these books were written early. These books were all written within the lifetime of people who had been there and seen Jesus on the cross. And so we think that the Second Corinthians was probably written around 80, 55, 56. And so if you go back 14 years from that time, guess where Saul just happens to be when, he's, when all these things are happening, when, the, when he sees this vision, when he has the thorn in his flesh. He's either in, he's probably close to the end of his time in Arabia or he's already in Tarsus. So this is a very important time. Very important time where the Lord is shaping him and molding him. Even as he's still in the, in, in the practice of sharing the gospel and making disciples. He's shaping him for the next part of his life. And the point of that is this. That in the waiting room where it, the, the waiting room in our, and, and everybody's in the waiting room currently. In some, short, in some form or fashion. We're all waiting for something. Could be the next doctor's appointment. It could be, uh, it could be you know, I was going to say for, for, for our kids, uh, they're waiting for that next birthday, waiting for Christmas. We don't wait for birthdays anymore, right? We're like, oh man, another one of those is coming around? Man. Remember that, I remember like my 22nd birthday and I just remember thinking, yep, it's, it's here. It's, it's a birthday. And now I dread them. I'm like, oh man, come on. Um, so if that's me now at 34, uh, we're going to, we'll see. Um, but again, the idea is that in the waiting room is where the, is where the God begins doing his deep work inside of you. It's where you see your weaknesses and his strength. And I love that, that really in, 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 in many different ways, we're going to be in that phase for the rest of our lives. And so it's so easy, though. It's so easy to, well, somebody said the life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. We're, we're so busy trying to think of what's happening next. We, I know with my personality type, I, I, I tend to neglect what's happening right now at the expense of what's coming next. And so be encouraged. Let's all be encouraged tonight. Uh, the Lord doesn't waste anything. We talked about a few weeks ago, he doesn't waste anything about your past. And he certainly doesn't waste right now. And so how can, the, how can you be trusting him um, right now and as you wait? Verse 26, he found him. Barnabas found him there in, in, uh, in Tarsus. After three years in Arabia, his time waiting in Tarsus, he was now ready. And he, let's see. And then Saul went with him back to, to Antioch. And he stayed there for a full year. Out of great weakness, he ministered with great strength because he waited because the Lord was working in and through him. And so again, the application is in waiting, in waiting. Now, oh, and let's, let's just see, let's just say this. At the end of that, how does that, how does Luke end that section? He says, and the, the, the believers were first known as Christians, little Christs, right? At Antioch, which was, it was really a derogatory term. That was not something that was like to encourage people, right? But what does it say that in, through this, the, the ministry that's happening, as the, the gospel's advancing, that believers are, are so closely identified with Jesus that they're called little Christs. I want that to describe my life. I want that to describe our church. 
So let's pray toward that end. And then, and then with that, again, as we wait, and, that, and whatever waiting you might be doing, how are you trusting Christ in your waiting now? And then finally, the head of the church is uniting and providing for his body. The head of the church is uniting and providing for his body. Verse 27 says, Now at this time some prophets had come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that, uh, that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. And in, proportion, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And, as they, and this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So let's, let's, uh, let's, let's start off by just addressing the elephant in the room. So we have a prophet named Agabus. I thought this was the New Testament era. I thought Hebrews 1 says that's all finished with. So uh, what I want to do with that, let's just, again, let's kind of examine what happens here. So empowered and led by the Spirit, Agabus stands, presumably in a church gathering, and indicates to the church at Antioch that there a famine would happen. Not just any famine, but a great famine that would happen everywhere, all over the world. Now, in the Old Testament, the God, the God gives us a threefold test. Um, we're not going to go over all these different passages, but I'm gonna, I want to give them to you so you, if, uh, if you want to look at them later. A threefold test to determine whether a prophet was, was of the Lord. Number one, does the prophet's life display God's character? Does the prophet's life display God's character? That's in Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 40. Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 40. Does a prophet's life display God's character? Secondly, do, uh, does what they prophesy actually happen? That seems really important, right? That seems very practical, right? Somebody says a famine's going to happen. Well, did it happen? That would be a really big indicator, right? So that's in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. And then thirdly, and I think this is very interesting, is their prophecy directing you toward greater faith in and obedience to the Lord? Is their prophecy directing you toward greater faith in and greater obedience to the Lord? That's in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. So we have, we have three tests here, and we don't really know much about Agabus's character. But we do see two other things. First of all, we know that it happened. I think this is interesting. Uh, that he, the, the Bible tells us, Luke tells us in a very matter-of-fact way, that Agabus made this, this prophecy of the famine. And then as like an editorial comment, he says in verse 28, and this took place during the reign of Claudius. Right? So he made this prophecy and it happened. And here's the historical marker so you can check and make sure that it's accurate. That's, a, that's amazing to me. So, uh, and then we see in verses 19, or verses 29 and 30. They send a collection to help the brother, to help brothers and sisters in need. Has anybody had, a, had an opportunity? Has anybody had the means to do so? They took up a collection to give to brothers and sisters in need. But I want you to hear this. This is, this is where not only the Lord is providing for his church, but the Lord is uniting his church. Think about this. Where is this happening? This is happening at a church where? In Antioch. Gentile-dominated Antioch. Believers are taking up collection to send where? 
to the brethren in Judea. In Judea. Gentiles are collecting up everything they possibly can to send as a blessing to the Jewish churches in Judea. People who before they trusted in Christ would have hated them, had nothing to do with them. And so they hear this warning and then they determined to send resources to bless the church in Jerusalem, made primarily up of Jews. Again, who is the main character in Acts and all of Scripture? Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he is the Lord of the gospel, bringing lost sinners to himself. He is the Lord of the harvest, sending out these scattered Jewish believers, then Barnabas, and then Saul out to this harvest to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And then we see that Jesus is the head of his body, the church. And he brings people to himself. He folds them into a church and he's providing for the church through the church. He provides for the church through the church. Amen. That'll preach right there, right? Whew. All right. So he provides for the church through the church and he unites it together under one banner. So there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. All are one under the banner of the cross. He unites them under one banner. So the Jew, Gentile believers in Antioch are generously giving to Jewish believers back in Judea. Like Paul would later write in Ephesians 2. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. Who made both groups, both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the strife. Which is, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and he came and preached peace to those who are near, the Jews. Far or near, it doesn't matter. You were still dead in your trespasses and sins. But he preached the gospel to both. Now, I want you to think about this. When did Jesus, talks about Jesus is preaching the gospel to those who were far off. When is Jesus preaching the gospel to Gentiles? He's preaching the gospel to Gentiles through his people in Acts. This is what Jesus continued to do and to preach and to teach. And through him, we both, Jews, Gentiles, have our access in one spirit, in the Holy Spirit, to the Father. That's beautiful. Racial reconciliation that's happening, where? In the church. And if it's not going to happen in the church, friends, where is it going to happen? Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is uniting and providing for his body. And so, as we close tonight, I want to... Just let's ask ourselves these questions. What opportunities are around you for pursuing unity with and provision for other believers in our church? Let's just make it really practical and, and, and easy to do right here in our own context. How are you, uh, what opportunities are around you right now to be pursuing unity with other believers and to be providing for other believers here in our church? And I, my goal is not to guilt you tonight. My goal is to stir us up to do one thing and one thing only. 
to pray. Pray that the, that the, the Lord of the gospel, the Lord of the harvest, and the, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, will open our eyes, that we will see the opportunities around us. And then that he would give us the power and desire to do what pleases him. I think I was talking with Danny about this earlier. Just, I love that verse, uh, those two verses, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work, work, get after it. Do what he's commanded you to do. Why? Because the Lord works in you. Because God works in you, giving you both the power and the desire to do what pleases him. Trust him. And as you trust him, as you rest in his sufficiency, work. And, when, and trusting in his sufficiency, you can work like you've never worked before. Because you're not working to get anything. You're working because you have everything already in him. That's what Ephesians 1 says, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the promises of God, it, 2 Corinthians tells us, in Christ are yes and amen. You have everything you need. God has given you everything you need to, uh, to accomplish his purposes. Everything you need to, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. God has given it all to you. And so with that then, let's pray. And let me just review. Uh, so to sum up tonight, um, Jesus, Christ is the, Jesus is the Christ of the gospel and he is advancing his kingdom. How are you obeying Jesus' uh, marching orders, the Great Commission? How have you been doing that lately? What bridges for the gospel in our daily lives are we neglecting? What does that reveal about our hearts? It's a heart problem. It's not just that I don't have opportunity. There's opportunities all around us. Jesus said the, the fields are white unto harvest. The problem is not the situation. The problem is our hearts. And so therefore, what do, what do we do? We pray. If there's sin, that he would reveal any sin that we haven't, that we're not confessing, that we're clinging to instead of him, that he would open our eyes, that we would see the opportunities, and that we would trust him as we go. Provide, trusting that he'll provide us with the power and the desire to do it. Second, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest, sending out laborers into the harvest. And we talked about specifically with Paul as he was waiting. In waiting, whatever you're waiting for right now, are you trusting him? How are you trusting God with your waiting right now? And then secondly, or thirdly, Jesus is the head of the church and he's uniting and providing for his body. What opportunities are around you for pursuing unity with and provision for believers in our church? Amen? Any questions before we conclude? Questions? Comments? Thoughts? Concerns? Accusations? Good. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Lord, your word is good. It is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our path. Lord, it's sweeter than honey from the comb. It, is, it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, I pray that you would, through, as we hear your word, as we read it, as we savor it together, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our eyes to sin that's within our hearts, whether we're clinging to, to ease, uh, to uh, what's safe, uh, or if, we're just, if, we're, if, there's, if there's racism or if there's some sort of other ism that we're clinging to, 
that's, that's a barrier for us to share the gospel. Father, would you help us to see that for what it is and to, and to confess that to you? Father, would you help us to see uh, the opportunities that you place all around us? Lord, we know your word says in Ephesians 2 that you've created us for good works, that you've set out before us that we would walk in them. Lord, we want to be a church that walks in good works that you've set out for us. And so, but we can't walk in what we don't see. Father, we need your help. And so would you open our eyes to see these opportunities, these good works that you've planned out for us. And Father, then give us the power and the desire to walk, to get busy doing the work that you've set for us. Lord, we, I know so much of my life, I've, I would, I've been wondering and worrying about what's God's will for my life. And Lord, you've spelled out so much of that so clearly in your word with the Great Commission. Lord, the, our task, the mission for us is to make disciples of all nations, to be your witnesses here close, close to us, to the neighboring, the neglected nearby, and to the ends of the earth. Father, help us to obey. Lord, we, we know so much word in this room right now. But Lord, we struggle to obey with the word that we know. And so Lord, would you give us the power and the desire to obey your word? Lord, that we would see amazing things happen in and through our church. Not for our glory, because Lord, we know, we know what your word says about us, that we're, we have nothing apart from Christ. Oh, but Father, that, you're, that your son, Jesus, would be glorified. That, the war, that as people come to know him through the ministry of this church, not just the programs, but the people, as we scatter out tonight to go back into our daily lives, Lord, that the people would see and hear the gospel through our people, through our church. And that they would come to know Jesus to the praise and glory of you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.